Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, indeed. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 189. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, we've got a couple of talented actors joining us on the podcast this week. A little bit later on, Joyce Bullifant. You know her from the Mary Tyler Moore Show, uh, the film Airplane, TV shows like Just Shoot Me. Well, literally dozens of television shows and films uh, through the course of the years. We'll talk with her in a little bit. But up first, uh, one of her all-time favorites on the program, the radio show, and here on the podcast. Always a terrific conversation when Stephen Tobolowsky joins us. Uh, and this time around, uh, we talked with Stephen about a number of things, including what he looks for in a director and how that's different, whether it's a stage, a film, or a television role. We also uh, talked about his work on the Goldbergs, a lot of recent voiceover work, and much more. Here's Stephen Tobolowsky on Downtown, the podcast. Hey, Rich. <laughs> Good to be in Maine again. Nice to connect with you again. I'm once again admiring here through the miracle of Skype, your your bookshelf, your backdrop. Uh, you showed us, uh, well, you showed us a piece of the Berlin Wall last time. You've got some wonderful things back there. Yeah, I I, I can show you some. Well, this is radio. Isn't it, it is. But, but I could describe this. Oh, that's uh, even better. We always like that kind of thing. Can you see what I'm holding up, Rich? Can it, you describe that to your radio audience? I would describe that as a stick. Yes, sir. This is a <laughs> stick, but it is no ordinary stick. This is a stick I picked up off the ground in Iceland. Oh, not on that fateful Iceland trip. The fateful Iceland trip in which I was thrown off of a horse on the side of an active volcano and broke my neck in five places. Doctor said I had a fatal injury. This stick was in a horse meadow, which the next morning after I was there in my neck brace, sitting with my dear wife, Anne, in the horse meadow, and the stick was beside me, and I picked up this stick, and for some reason, I decided I would keep it. I have no idea <laughs> why, but over the years now, because that was broken neck, I have to, I don't know, Rich. As you live through your life, I've, I've hit the big seven zero. As you as as you go through your life, you kind of now categorize your catastrophes by date. I can't remember some of the good stuff, but my broken neck was two thousand and eight. So I've had this stick since wow. two thousand and eight, and it has become a symbol that you can keep anything as long as you respect it, you protect it, you don't break it. And you honor what it is, and you'll have that memory forever. So this is my stick from Iceland. Wow. It's a talisman now. It's a talisman now. Now it is, you know, <laughs> I, I could put it on a, a baseball cap and walk around with it. That's right. That's wonderful. Speaking of your wife, Anna, I did want to mention, we'll, we'll talk about what you're doing, but uh, looks like she is having a wonderful time uh, doing the terrific uh, David Lindsay, a bear play uh, right in the middle of, uh, in Los Angeles, I believe these days. Can you tell us about what yeah, she's been up people. to? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it's such a great spectacular. show. It is a spectacular play. Good people. It is a spectacular play and it's a wonderful production. And it, the thing Anne has done, 
she's a she's a splendid director to begin with, and her specialty as a director is bringing performances out of people, and this this play is spectacular. We've had people compare it uh, favorably to the Broadway production of just saying mm-hmm. this is one of the greatest productions, certainly of this play they've seen, but. The thing that Anne does that people don't understand what she does that's so great is that she has some kind of hillbilly blood in her. <laughs> like she's from she's from like the sticks in Georgia. And you she there is no quit in her. So as they began rehearsals for good people, the roof of the theater collapsed onto the stage. The theater was bathed with uh, toxic liquid. Uh, they had to close the theater. They had to clear everybody out. They had to get the city in there. They make sure that the water wasn't contaminated, didn't have COVID in there. It was a huge COVID, all this. So Anne, not quitting, not stopping, tells everybody, we're going to practice in my backyard, <laughs> obeying social distancing. Everybody's going to have their COVID test. We're going to stay six feet apart and we're going to work on this play until we see if we have a theater or not. And so by the time, uh, I think it took about four weeks to build the theater. That meant she had one week in the theater before it opened. And there was no set, no nothing. But she went in there and she said, we're going to practice at my house. And then we're going to practice, have a second practice in the theater. They opened it up. And it was spectacular. I got to say, it is wonderful. And the reviews it's been getting are just, just beautiful. And it's a real tribute, not only to Anne, but to the wonderful cast, fantastic cast. You mentioned directing. Uh, From your experience, whether it's stage, film, or or television, what kind of director are you looking for as an actor? Boy, and and you you put your finger on the pulse. because it really depends if you're talking about stage, television, or theater. If you're talking about theater, you've got a rehearsal period. Like on Broadway, you can have 10 weeks. I think for mornings at seven, we maybe had eight weeks of rehearsal and then two or three weeks of preview. You had a lot of time. So Dan Sullivan, who was our director for that show, spectacular director, he kind of lets you grow into the part because you have that kind of time. Uh, When you're doing a film, you have not that kind of time, but you do have time to rehearse a little bit. And and the director kind of works mainly with the cinematographer to see how we're going to shoot this. But the really wonderful directors I've worked with, like Ridley Scott and Barbe Schroeder, uh, really Alan Parker. Oh, my God. What a genius. The thing the really great film directors do is when you do theater, the hit of theater is recreating reality, right? So the audience is sitting in their chairs. They know they're not seeing something real. They know these people have costumes and have rehearsed these lines. But somehow, if it's right, the reality of what happens on stage sucks you into the experience on stage and you love it. However, film You don't have that because as an audience member, every time there's a camera edit, every time music comes into a scene or there's a special effect, you realize that there's a puppet master behind the scene. So the hit of reality 
is not what moves you when you see movies. The thing that moves you in cinema is surprise. And the really great directors like Alan Parker, Ridley Scott, uh, Barbe Schroeder, who, who I did Single White Female with, uh, what they do is they create a situation that as an actor, you're going to be surprised. And they capture that on film and and that translates to to an audience in the in in, in, in sitting in the theater watching it. Now, television, <laughs> television, you have five days, man. You have five days between when you see the script and you film it in front of a live audience, like one day at a time, or like the Goldbergs, which is filmed. You have no rehearsal. You you. You, you, you're doing five to 10 pages of script a day, Californication, you've got nothing. So you have to be able to improvise. They kind of tell you where to stand and you have to be free as an actor. You need a, a director that just minds the boundaries and says, go for it, man. It, it gives you permission to go for it because they have to capture the rawness of that experience for a TV show to work. Have you ever had a director who gave you line readings? Oh, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, Californication, we, we, we had a director at one point and uh, very famous, but um, the director would say, Stephen, on this line saying, what is that, a gun? And I go, well, you know, I'm Stu Beggs ago. What is that, a gun? No, Stephen, what is that, a gun? I go, no, no, no. But, and it was so, fr and it was so frustrating because I don't, I don't think I worked that way in high school. And, <laughs> and you know, certainly when, when we did Groundhog Day, uh, Harold Ramis, you know, he just let Bill Murray and I go. You know, it, it's like, okay, if it's working, don't fix it. Right. Yes, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is extremely frustrating. It, it shows that the director doesn't trust you. Mm. And trust is the center of any uh, activity that has to do with acting. Either you have to, on theater, you have to trust your partner on stage. Uh, in film, you have to trust your director and cinematographer. And I think in something like the Goldbergs, as a cast... And as a crew, we all trust one another. I was uh, reading, and, and we had Mark on the show, Mark Harris's wonderful book uh, about uh, Mike Nichols and, and oh. his unique take on directing, which was often just to sit down with actors and, and talk about personal experiences from his life, trying to get them open up. And that was, that was often his method of getting people to understand the character they were portraying. That's that's and, and, you know, that is a sh modern shorthand for what Stanislavski would call trying to create the 24 hour life of the character by using sense memory. You, you, you go back and find little things in your life that correspond to the character. And if you could create the 24 hour life of a character, you can do anything from Romeo to Juliet. I remember Ed K. Martin was a great acting teacher I had. And he said, the only two things you need to know as an actor is what is my greatest hope and what is my greatest fear? 
If you know those two things, that creates a tightrope, and your character walks on that. Every other question spins off of those two things. Now, I had Ed K. Martin in, in graduate school, and Holly Hunter had Ed K. Martin, I think, in undergraduate school at Carnegie Mellon. And we, I remember Ed K. Martin called me up when I graduated a University of Illinois. Well, I didn't graduate. I ran away from it. <laughs> <laughs> I left my master's degree with, you know, after one year saying, I'm gone. Right. Ed K. Martin called me at home and said, I'm doing a production of Bus Stop. Would you like to play Bo in Bus oh, Stop? Wow. And I said, absolutely, Ed. He said, I have a great Sherry for you. Uh, she's an actress I've been working with at Carnegie Mellon. She's absolutely wonderful, a girl named Holly Hunter. And I go, oh, Ed, I'm sure she's going to be great. You know, whoever this Holly girl is, I'm sure she's <laughs> going to be great. I ended up uh, dropping out of Bus Stop because my girlfriend Beth at the time was saying, like, well, I don't want you going to Michigan in the winter uh, to do this play over the holidays. So I called up Ed and he said, well, Holly Hunter dropped out too for the same reason. And it turned out a few years later, Holly Hunter and I played boyfriend and girlfriend on Broadway in Beth's play, The Wake of Jamie Foster. Oh. And so, you know, the pool, <laughs> the pool in acting, you know, the, the, it's it's a small pool, but it's deep, you know. <laughs> We're talking with Stephen Tobolowsky here on Downtown. Uh, let's talk about the Goldbergs in in the news lately, uh, some issues there uh, with Jeff Garland. Uh, you've worked on the show for uh, eight years now. Uh, what's happening with the show and what's happening with your role? Yeah, I yeah, I just heard about that uh, yesterday, about Jeff not doing the Goldbergs anymore. And, you know, they're... I don't know the exact truth of it. I've done many scenes with Jeff and he's always funny. He's always full of energy. And, you know, I, I don't know anything about making an unpleasant set to work on, but, uh, one thing that's happening with the Goldbergs that may be behind this entire thing too, with Jeff is that with COVID, we are undergoing a lot of new restrictions. Mm. In the old days, we would do an episode of the Goldbergs in five days. We would start on Monday and end on Friday. Now, on the show, I've done five shows so far this season on the Goldbergs. It's We're scheduled for two weeks because you never know when uh, someone's going to test positive. And they have to juggle around which scenes they shoot. And sometimes they'll shoot scenes for one show several weeks later after the, the person has a, a few negative tests under them. It's very complicated now. And I think uh, in terms of Jeff, scheduling could have been a, a conflict for him. Scheduling, just being able to be free all mm. the time to be able to do that because he has a lot of irons in the fire too. Uh, and a lot of things happening. And, and so it could be just difficult for him and, 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 you know, the Goldbergs, I think, just like Law & Order, I've worked on a couple of the Law & Order shows. Goldbergs is in the same category. It is at the top of the list. Everything on those shows work like magic 
because the crew, the 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 actors, the cast, the directors, everybody works like clockwork, and they get the show done. You know, if if you can't work like clockwork, it may be yeah. too difficult. So anyway, I wish I wish Jeff the best. I know that the shows this year on Goldberg's have been hilarious. Well, and we were... and so the writing is very strong. And and yesterday, besides the news of Jeff, which was shocking, my manager called up and said, uh, Goldberg's has just been extended uh, for four more shows this season because of the success of it. So we're shooting four more shows. So the writing is the strength of that show. And um, as long as the writing is strong, as long as we've got Wendy and Sean, we, we have a powerful show. Well, and we were talking before we came on the air. You, you've had some uh, some fun episodes this season. One of my favorites was when uh, uh, Wendy's character wanted to make sure that the non-athletes in the school <laughs> were treated as well and honored as much as the athletes. And, boy, you had a lot of uh, uh, two-handed scenes with Wendy and also with Sean. They were just great. It, it That show was so hard to get through because it was so funny. And one of the things that makes it funny is it's true. And every <laughs> at least my high school was that everything was for the athlete and nothing was for the non-athlete. And so... <laughs> For our less coordinated students, we're going to have a non-athletic senior day. (laughs) I mean, but you know it's true. The chess club, they never did that. The people who played the piano, those people were never recognized. (laughs) Uh, Our school was only football, football. That's all, blocking and tackling. Uh, So we've had some really delightful shows And one of the things the Goldbergs does that's really kind of special, and and I haven't seen it in that many shows, they're able to tell an exaggerated story and in doing so, highlight the truth. And one of the things that's exaggerated is Adam Goldberg's story as, as a real person, as a boy growing up filmed all these sequences from his life. And as we all look back, like me and the damn stick (laughs) here in the day, you know, as we look back on our life, these things from our past, the talismans become exaggerated. And the Goldbergs is able to tell an exaggerated story and it still has the ring of truth. And and that's a really magical formula. and, And that comes down to really wonderful writing and wonderful directing. Well, and so many talented actors, uh, yourself included in that, obviously. Um, losing George Siegel, but then a wonderful episode following up on that with the great Judd Hirsch. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, the, there is such a respect for actors on the set. Every time you're on the set, even with this COVID nightmare going on, you feel like you are respected and also the actors respect the crew. Uh, the people, just to give, we were talking about Stanislavski and the 24 hour life of a, of a character that an actor wants to create. On the crew of the Goldbergs, we have Buddy who's uh, our one of our prop, prop men, prop master. He comes up to me and he says, in this scene, uh, Principal Ball, you have a briefcase. So I was thinking, what kind of a briefcase would you have? So 
I figured you would have a briefcase that was maybe given to you as a gift, maybe when you were when you did graduate school and you've had this suit briefcase for the last 40 years. And and so I went back and I got this leather case that that dates back to when you probably went to graduate school and it has and I'm going like that is the thought process an actor goes through. Right, right. And and here is you know and the prop people on the Goldbergs, they think that through on every little prop that you have as to what kind of a pin would you have in your office? What kind of a <laughs> pad are you writing on? And it's it's magnificent. I, I have one episode. I don't know if they've shown it yet in which uh, we have to for Beverly Goldberg, we have to redo the charter of the school and to remove her from being in the line of succession. If anything happens to the principal, the vice principal, then, you know, the Quaker warden gets to take charge. So we do a coup to take Beverly Goldberg out of the chain of succession. And I cannot believe it. The prop department came up with an entire document that that was the school uh, the, the school charter that was 100 pages long. And within this charter, it had my speeches written wow. into the text of the charter. So me, have if I had trouble on my lines, all I had to do was read the lines right off of the charter. That's fantastic. I mean, they're thinking ahead. That's, that's attention to detail. Well, and it shows in the final product. Yes, it's terrific. Uh, you mentioned that you've been doing a lot of voiceover work lately. What, what kind of things you've been working on? It, it's nuts. You, you know, I've... It's it's a skill that I always wanted, and I've always marveled at the people uh, like Pam Adlon on Californication, oh. and uh, Pam is like one of the queens of voiceover. Uh, Julia Cato, who I worked with on uh, One Day at a Time, she played uh, one of the mothers on Rugrats and several roles on Rugrats, and she has like 500 credits. You know, the these people, it it is a very specific skill which I've always wanted to learn. And I've done a few shows now. I did a Peabody and, and what is it, Peabody and Sherman? Peabody and Sherman, yes. Okay. Now, I don't know if we discussed it here, but I got that part not from my voiceover work, but from doing the Tobolowsky Files podcast. Oh, well, there. And the podcast in particular in which I was thrown from the horse in Iceland and broke my neck because – the writer-producer had just come from a horseback riding trip in Iceland. And so he heard that and said, I need that voice in Peabody and Sherman. Wow. So he called me up. They called me up and they said, you have this part. You don't have to audition. And we have drawn the part to be you. And I go, wow. So I show up and he shows me a picture of the part. It's the most horrifying-looking self-portrait I ever saw. You got this little guy, the big Adam's apple, bald, you know, bulging eyes, glasses, oh. big, long nose, you, you know, like skinny arms. I'm thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, I need to work out more. And, and, and uh, another one I got because of me was Archer. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. Show Archer. So I was in... And again, I don't know if I told this story on your show. I was in Finland and we were doing one day at a time. And Mike Royce, 
Uh, the executive producer said, can you come from Helsinki to Austin, Texas? We're having a meeting, a producer's meeting, about one day at a time. We're going to do a Q&A here. So I said, yes. There is a nonstop flight from Helsinki to Austin, Texas. Who knew? And let me tell you, <laughs> man, you're watching a lot of movies on that flight. Let me tell you, that is a long flight. Got to Austin, Texas, got to the hotel, met Mike Royce in the lobby. He said, let's go eat Mexican food. Now, here's a true Hollywood story. We leave the hotel and are going down the crosswalk, crossing a street in Austin, Texas. Coming the other way is another man named Mike. And he goes, wait a minute, Stephen Tobolowsky? And I go, yeah. He says, hi, uh, I'm one of the executive producers and writers of the TV show Archer. And we were thinking about you for a part on Archer because you're a character actor and you're in all these different shows. And so we thought it would be hilarious if as a character actor, you would be on Archer. And we're going to draw uh, our character to look exactly like you. And I'm thinking of Peabody and Sherman. I'm going like, oh, God. And 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 I, I go, well, sure, I would love to. He says, OK, we'll send you scripts and we'll start recording right away. Uh, oh, and Stephen, if you could do me a favor, I know you're on that show one day at a time and I really love it. And I have a, a pitch idea I wanted to do. Could you possibly introduce me to someone involved in the show? And I go, Mike, meet Mike. There you go. Here's our wow. executive True story in a crosswalk in Austin, in Austin, Texas. And I must say, I just last week did two more episodes on Archer, and my character on Archer looks very much like me. Oh, good, so good. I'm very happy about that, <laughs> and I'm a billionaire. Even better. Even better. Fantastic. I don't want to take up too much time, but I want to ask you about one uh, other show that you've done because uh, – I love the show. It didn't have a long run, but what was your experience doing John from Cincinnati? Gosh, uh, that was that was pretty great. That was uh, David Milch, and and he used a lot of us guys that were in Deadwood, right? And so the drill was we'd be shooting Deadwood, and he he was thinking that uh, David Milch was thinking about season four of Deadwood, which never happened, right? Right, and he said, in the meantime, let's get this John from Cincinnati thing going. And he called me up at home and he said, Stephen, are you available today? And I go, yes, sir. For what? He says, I'm doing a new show, John in Cincinnati. How long would it take you to get to San Diego? <laughs> I, I go, well, I'm living in Los Angeles. He says, so that'll be two, two and a half hours. Okay. Start driving now. And we'll see if we could shoot your scene tonight. I'm going, David, I don't even know what we're doing. He says, don't worry about that. Just get to San Diego. So I say to Annie, I said, Annie, I think I got a job in San Diego. I don't know what this is. John from Cincinnati, I have no idea what this show is. So I drove down to San Diego, got there, and David greeted me and said, oh, we're running late on set, so we're not going to be able to shoot your scene tonight, but we'll shoot it tomorrow. And I go, David, I don't even know what we're shooting. I don't know what the show is. I don't know what my part is. He says, oh, well, let me give you a script. So he gives me a script, and I have all these lines. I'm like a, an attorney or something. But again, we got to work out with all of our friends from Deadwood. So, so 
I, I really had very little idea what I was doing. But I think, what was I saying before about directors? David Milch was one of those guys who liked to inject surprise into the mix. And so we were all fighting for our lives on any of his shows, trying to remember what the hell we were doing. <laughs> well, I, I love the show. I was hoping for more of it, but yeah, the business. Yeah, it, yeah it, was, it was spectacular. And I think the thing that curtailed it was David's passion for doing the fourth season of Deadwood, mm. which didn't happen. So I think one kind of canceled out the other. His focus got shifted from one to the other. And... It's a shame because Deadwood was unique, not for everybody, but it was a work of art on television. I mean, that still is startling in, in its quality. And I mentioned this, I believe, on your show, but the people who worked on Deadwood, we usually had two camera crews going. And one of the camera crews was the same crew Alan Parker had to shoot Mississippi Burning. Oh, wow. We're talking about the best of the best mm. worked on Deadwood. Crazy. That was great. Well, uh, Stephen, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon. I love it. And is it a winter wonderland in Maine? Uh, it, it, it was for about a week and a half, and then it got really warm and it rained, and we have bare ground outside now. Oh, no. <laughs> well, anyway, I wish you and your family and everybody in Maine that I love so much the happiest of Christmases. Well, we hope uh, you and your family have a wonderful holiday. I hope you get some quality grandparent time. Oh, we do. We're going to have good grandparent time with baby Dior, I promise. Well, that's Stephen Tobolowsky with us here on Downtown, the podcast. Always great to talk with Stephen. We'll uh, take a little break for a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we come back, actress Joyce Bullifant on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast, our next guest, uh, perhaps best known as Marie Slaughter, the wife of Murray Slaughter, played by Gavin McLeod on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. She's had a remarkable career in film, television, and on stage as well. Always a delight when we catch up with Joyce Bullifant, who, well, first of all, explained to us that since we had spoken with her about a year ago, she had ended up moving some three times. Well, uh, let's see. The first move um, I had made to my new home after Roger passed away, and then COVID hit, and my son John Asher came to uh, stay with me, and we did these crazy videos. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, I, I did. They were wonderful. <laughs> crazy. Um, so we did those. That kept us entertained. He loves to cook, and I love to eat. So I think probably <laughs> gained weight because he, he cooks things that I never eat, like sausage and bacon <laughs> and things like that. But it was great. And on my birthday, which is tomorrow, by the way. I know. On my, birth <laughs> on my birthday a year ago. 
he made a French onion soup, which is Ooh. one of my favorite things. But he forgot. He put the bread in the bottom, and then the cheese all fell to the bottom instead of putting it on the top. Oh, dear. But it was delicious, and the thought was so special. And, uh, well, then after COVID, I decided I needed some time after a year with John, some time with my two older children and who live up in near Aspen and uh, the grandchildren up there, I kind of wanted to be in touch. You know, um, it's funny what that whole year of COVID seriousness did, lockdown and all that. So I found a, a house up there on the mountain, but it was 45 minutes away from my children, which didn't bother me because driving up there is beautiful. And um, it was near uh, the Center for Abused Children that I was the founder of. And I thought, oh, good, I can work with them. And uh, I was up on a mountaintop. I could have all the seasons of the year that I loved. And my neighbors were dear. And I was really happy. And John helped me move in and built a lot of the furniture, put it together. And then he left. And then I I went to the center that I'd started where I thought, oh, they're probably going to need my help. Not at all. They're very, very <laughs> organized. They're doing great. And if I went there to help, I'd be saying, don't you think this piece of furniture should look better over there? Don't you think I should do that? So I thought, don't you dare, Joyce. They are doing so well. They don't need me at all. And then um, I was up and down the stairs, which bothered my children. There were 18 steps up to my bedroom and quite a bit of property and snow and ice, which I happen to love, but you have to be careful. And then uh, I had this strange episode that was, kind of weird. And I told my children, I said, you're going to the ER right now. I said, what? And my blood pressure was 200 over a hundred. Oh my. Uh, the altitude. Oh yes. Amazing. Mm. So I said to my doctor, I don't understand. I lived here for 13 years before with, with Roger and I never had any problems then. He said, yeah, but you weren't 83. And I said, that's not even a funny thing to say. That's, that's an awful thing. How, why would he do that? Awful. <laughs> so Mary sold my house that I just bought, that I lived in for six months. She sold it, made money, sold the furniture. And he, I thought, oh, my gosh, back to the desert. It's not my thing. But I found this wonderful unit in these uh, three, only three high rises in the desert. And I'm on the third floor, and today I am looking at a lake that surrounds the building, a beautiful golf course, the mountains that you can almost touch, and today there's snow on the top of the mountain. So I'm very happy. I think there was a reason for all of this, and life couldn't be better. Well, and you you posted on on Facebook the other day, too, that... uh, uh, you feel that you've got a really good support system in place, which everybody needs. Oh, you know, right before Roger passed away, there was only one night that I let down. I was really strong through seeing him through his transition and so happy that I could 
be there for him and, and help him. And one night, though, I broke down. We were holding hands, watching television, and he had just put his robe on and gotten out of bed for a while. I was holding his hand real tight, and all of a sudden, I just broke down. And I just said, I'm going to miss you so much. I just love you so much. It's a miracle we finally got together, which we always said. And then he just held on to me, and he said, yes, but you have a great support system. And I do. I just have wonderful, wonderful close friends here and far, and I couldn't have done it without them. Well, that's wonderful to hear. We're talking with Joyce Bullifant here on Downtown. Uh, you lost a couple of very good friends. Uh, they were friends of our show, but but you knew them so very well. Uh, let, let's start with maybe the sweetest man that I think I've I've ever had the chance to talk with on the show, Gavin McLeod. I know who you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, a, what a dear, dear man Gavin was. Oh, do you know, people say things like, I never heard that person say an unkind word. Well, that was Gavin. He was always kind and generous and always looked at the, the good the good things in people. He he was amazing that way. I remember when we went through a terrible earthquake when I lived in uh, Granada Hills out on a farm and it was a terrible seven point one earthquake and we happened to be seven miles from the epicenter and he came out he was so worried he bought hot dogs from nathan's to make sure we had something <laughs> to eat <laughs> but that dear friend and then ed asner oh behind that all that gruff front was just a dear teddy bear who did i was always doing um things to raise money for children especially for dyslexia mm. and autism and abused children. And whenever I asked him to show up or do anything, including playing Thomas Edison, he did it without blinking an eye. Well, they will so both they'll be missed so friends. much. Uh, I want to talk about some exciting news, and that is the audiobook version of your wonderful memoir, My Four Hollywood Husbands. Well, thank you. You know what? I haven't heard it. John, my son, who's a director, directed it and uh, during COVID. And everybody had said, why don't you do an audio book? So I thought, well, I don't have anything else going on right now. Let's do it. <laughs> and I have, I put it on my phone to listen to. And this is what I heard. And I thought, what in the world is that? But it's evidently just something on my phone because all the books that I wanted to listen to on Audible were all in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't even heard it. I hope it's okay. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be great. I was I was reading through the book again. Uh, I loved it the first time I read it, and it was great to revisit it again. And I was um, I was struck once again by the story of your. Uh, your pretty complex relationship with your former stepmother, Helen Hayes. Oh, yes, it was very complex. It was, at times, the most loving relationship I ever had. And at other times, it was the scariest relationship <laughs> I ever had. And I, I do a show called Remembering Helen Hayes with Love. And it's all about our relationship. 
And one of the things I say at the beginning is everyone asked me, what was the first lady of the American theater really like? <laughs> and I said, I can tell you in one poem, there was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. <laughs> <laughs> that was Helen. But Lillian Gish, who was her best friend, said to me, Oh, darling, oh, don't pay any attention to her when she yells like that. And is upset. it's just the Irish in her. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were able to make peace with her at the end. How important was that to you? Oh, it meant everything to me. Everything. Um, we we kind of were on and off after uh, Jimmy and I were divorced. She made it pretty hard on me, but at her funeral, I was the last person at the gravesite. As everybody was going, it was a snowy day, and everyone was headed towards the limousines all lined up. And I was just just really feeling such a loss. And this young priest who had been her friend for the last year of her life came up and gave me a big hug. And he said, Joyce, Helen wanted you to know that she was so sorry that she made life hard for you. But she wanted to know that she loved you very much. Mm. Wow. And that did me in, of course. But I kind of knew it. I knew that it was sort of a position that she had to have a front about that she really she really always had my best interest at heart i want to ask you too about a role that you've talked about playing Sunday. will someone please cast you as amanda wingfield oh i know i kept telling everybody and guess what there is a group that raises money for children's theater program and they asked me if I'd like to do the Glass Menagerie in oh. February. But now here's the kicker. I got the play, which I'd seen many times, but not for many, many years. And I started reading it. She has one long monologue after another. Oh, yes. So I thought, I better sit down and start really seeing if I can memorize like I've always been able to. So far, I've memorized the first scene, so and not having any problem with that. So then I'll just go on to the next scene and just keep learning it before we get into rehearsal. Because if I have any problems, I want to tell them up front before we get into it. But I'm very excited about the idea of doing it. Well, that is wonderful. Now, I work with young high school actors. I always find for them it's often somewhat easier to memorize a long monologue than it is to do a lot of rapid fire dialogue with one or two other characters. Well, that's true too. And I always find, um, I, I didn't have that much trouble with the first monologue, but, but she goes all over the place. I mean, she jumps from one subject to another, but I've always learned lines the very best after I have the blocking because mm. I associate the move with what I'm saying. And um, and now I'm having to kind of make up blocking in my head to learn it. <laughs> you know? But I, I, I love the character. And having been brought up in the South since I was 12, I uh, relate to a lot of her 
her attitude. And my mother was not too far away from that, from Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> I see you're also a fan of a musical that I love, Camelot. Oh, yes, I love Camelot. If do, how did you know that? Uh, I think you posted that on social media, and I and I saw oh, that. Oh, yeah, I probably did, yes. <laughs> that, but my favorite, well, I don't know. Uh, I have so many wonderful stories about musicals, but the role I always wanted to play was Molly and the unthinkable Molly Brown. Mm. And I got to do that one year, and right. I just, oh, boy, I loved it. Is that your all-time favorite musical role? Yes. What what's your what's your favorite show of all the musicals of just the ones that you've done? What is your favorite? Uh, well, um, my favorite it wasn't a musical though. I think was working with Fred Astaire. Oh wow! On Alcoa Presents and a show where he played the devil and he was trying to tempt me to be a bad girl. <laughs> and I was a very happily married woman. He was trying to coerce me into not being good. And he came up to me. We we had a dance together. I was so excited when my agent told me. I thought, That's, I can just picture it now. He's in the chiffon gown. He's going to lift me in the air. And we're going to walk around. No, it was to do the twist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And but just before the scene, he said, "Miss Boulevard, I kept saying, Mister Stair, please don't call me Miss Boulevard, call me Joyce." He said, I, "I I need your help. Come behind the flat over here." I said, "Yes, sir." And he, I said, "What is it?" He said, "I don't know how to do the twist. Would you teach me real quick?" <laughs> <laughs> I thought Fred Astaire danced like that. <laughs> Uh, you've had so many great television roles through the years. How much uh, How much did you enjoy working with David Spade and that terrific ensemble in Just Shoot Me? Oh, that was fun. It was very different than when I had been working a lot earlier years uh, because all of the writers are now called producers. And I'm used to, I was brought up in the theater when the director gives you a direction. I mean, the director's word is God. You don't listen to your mother. You don't listen to another cast member. You listen to the director. Well, in this case, all of the producers, quote, writers, uh, you do a scene and they sit in a row and they start with one, he give you a note, the next one give you a note, the next one give, and they'd be all different. So I went up to David Spade and I said, I'm really confused. What do you do? He said, you do what you think is right. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> it's, it's very different. That's a direction any actor can follow right there. Yes, exactly. But I like to be given direction. I really do. So will you be staying out right there, or are you going to be traveling for Christmas? I'm going to Los Angeles to be with my son, John, and my Asher children and family. Well, that is wonderful. Well, it's so great to talk with you again. We appreciate you making time for us, Joyce. We, we wish you uh, wonderful success with Glass Menagerie, uh, the book, the audio book. If you haven't read it yet, let, let Joyce read it to you, and you'll enjoy it so much. And we hope you have an absolutely amazing birthday, even though the number makes no sense to me since you look about 30 <laughs> years younger than what that number claims. Oh, you are the sweet. You're my new best friend. 
<laughs> you have very happy holidays and and may the new year new year new year be blessed with people learning to be kind to each other. Actress Joyce Bullifant with us on Downtown the podcast. Our thanks to Joyce, thanks to Stephen Tobolowski, and thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown. Uh, we'll be around next week. In the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. We'll catch you soon right here on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.